0: This is WPRB in Princeton, New Jersey, community-supported, independent radio. And now, at 5 p.m., it's WPRB News and Culture. I'm your host, Adam Sanders. Last season, News and Culture did a show entitled Changemakers in the Community. We wanted to show the vibrancy and vitality of local activists and organizations working to bring about positive change in our New Jersey and Philadelphia communities, We wanted to show that a movement begins not on the steps of the Capitol, but in homes, schools, churches, and libraries. This season, we come to the table with a similar goal, but turning our attention to the arts. With the Oscars on TV, the New York Philharmonic on the radio, and trips to Broadway and the Metropolitan Museum only a train ride away, one can forget all about the great art happening here in New Jersey. Local art makers, performers, curators, and talents are producing great culture in our very backyard, In community spaces where voices often silenced on the national stage can have far greater sway. Here in New Jersey, poets compose plays about life after imprisonment, strangely lifelike sculptures haunt gardens, and middle schoolers perform trapeze acts, and you don't even need to buy a train ticket to see them. So today on WPRB News & Culture, we bring you arts in your backyard. Stories of art making, collaboration, and community where you might not expect to find them. First, Ellie Diamond learns about the Trenton Circus Squad, a nonprofit whose after-school workshops teach kids and tweens the ropes of the circus, literally. Then, Sophie Loheny and Mira Ho Chen visit the Grounds for Sculpture in Hamilton, New Jersey, and explore one of its longest and strangest collections. Clare McQueenie speaks to Reginald Dwayne Betts, the MacArthur Genius Grant-winning poet, performer, and legal scholar behind Felon, an American washi tale, a play about his own experiences in the prison system. And Alan Plotz and Pat Great learn about the work of the Arts Council of Princeton in bringing the joys of music of the arts to the suburban world. Stick around, we'll be right back.
1: WPRB wants you to know that if you live, work, go to school, or pay taxes in the city of Philadelphia, you should sign up for a free Library of Philadelphia library card. You can gain online access to ebooks, audiobooks, movies, music, digital learning resources, online programming, and much more. To apply for a card or learn more, visit freelibrary.org. This has been a public service announcement from WPRB Princeton, community supported, independent radio.
0: You're listening to WPRB News and Culture. First up on News and Culture, Ellie Diamond learns about the Trenton Circus Squad, a nonprofit whose after-school workshops teach kids and tweens the ropes of the circus, quite literally.
2: juggling while balancing on a globe. A woman swinging to her near certain death on the trapeze. A group of clowns biking around on the smallest tricycle you've ever seen. All this happening under one roof. Or under one big top tent. The Trenton Circus Squad is a Trenton-based circus squad, as the name might suggest, that serves as an after-school program for the area's youth ranging from ages 6 to 18. Their reach extends far beyond the city limits, with students from the wider Mercer County, northern New Jersey, and even Pennsylvania traveling to feel the booming bass of the music and try out a new skill or two. I had the opportunity to speak to two members of the squad, director of operations Regina Mundy, and a student performer turned coach Bilal Haley, about their experiences with TCS. So, I mean, of course, I have so many questions, but to start, just the basics. When was the Trenton Circus Squad started? Who started it? Why? Et cetera.
3: Right. So, Zoe Brooks and Tom Von Osen are the founders of Trenton Circus Squad. They began the program in 2015. Um, so, the goal was to bring circus art to youth in Trenton and the surrounding areas. And we're now in our eighth year of operations. Um, And we're really lucky because our program has been so successful that some of our very first squad members are now coaches um, here in the factory, but also at other circus programs and after-school programs like across the country. So um, just bringing access to circus arts to people in Trenton and definitely um, surrounding areas of Mercer County. And now we've kind of expanded and our services um, we have people coming from, like, Pennsylvania and, like, northern New Jersey as well.
2: That's so great. So why Circus? Because obviously that might sound a little unique, a little weird maybe to some people. But, yeah, why why is Circus the thing that the founders chose?
3: Yeah, so funny enough, um, Tom is actually a – so our, our current executive director and founder, um, Tom is a <laughs> – um trained clown. Oh. <laughs> so, yeah, so he has experience in circus um and thought that it would be really valuable as like a life skill because not only in circus do you learn how to do, you know, like juggling, but you're also learning some good teamwork and communication skills. Mm-hmm. And what we've learned having, you know, kids from not only Trenton but kids from Princeton, Hamilton, um you know, like even like as far as like Burlington County. Um we have people coming from such different backgrounds and giving them something common to work on together has been really good to see them build relationships. Um, and we see their social and emotional growth through circus skills. Yeah. Um, so that's really cool because they are learning to trust themselves and their bodies, but also their friends who they may never have made if they didn't come to Trenton Circus Squad. So circus is just a great way to, bring people together, and Tom has a lot of the, you know, programming experience of, you know, being a clown and learning all these skills, and Zoe really brought more of the operational and organizational um, component to it.
2: Yeah. So if Tom is a clown, then I assume that there is some, some clown learning and teaching being done. What other aspects of circus are included in the program? Like, is there trapeze, wire walking, fabrics, Oh, tossing... Absolutely.
3: So Thanks. we have quite a few, um, so uh, forgive me if I don't name all of them, because it's, it's I feel okay. like we expand and can do more every time um, we have a show and a workshop, but some of our most popular actually are aerial, so that includes, mm-hmm. you know, the fabrics, the lira, mm-hmm. um, the sling, as well as um, our head coach is, like, an amazing aerial artist, and that's kind of where her expertise but she also does a lot with our acrobatics and the second most popular station um during our workshops is dunks so the best way i can explain it is like 12 year olds doing things that harlem globetrotters do oh um <laughs> it is so impressive and so cool to watch because they have like no fear and they're so proud of themselves when they can do like a front flip into a dunk mm-hmm. um And then they, you know, fall down on the crash mat and they're just so proud of themselves. So we have aerials, acrobatics, dunks. We have juggling. And juggling is just encompassing of juggling rings, um, juggling clubs. And we have cigar boxes that people can juggle with. What else do we have over there? Um, Like a wide array of juggling items. But then there's also balance. Mm -hmm. So we have balance beams. We have... um, Tight rope. we also have do you have the balls the it. big
2: balls the big ceramic balls
3: oh yeah that's globes Globes, yeah those are some of my favorites um <laughs> so it's funny when I have new people come into the factory especially we have volunteers I tell them do you want to go and try and pick up one of those balls and <laughs> they think oh yeah perfect it's like you know some sort of like exercise ball and they go over and they're like oh this is not yeah uh not and easy like, no, it's It's for Globe, and they can walk on those. Um, Those are really popular for people to jump rope on, as well as juggle. And we see that in probably every one of our shows. We incorporate Globes and juggling at some point. And um, we also have like isolations. We have members who love to work with hula hoops, Mm -hmm. which has been really great to see that develop. And we have German Wheel. And so that is one of the really fun ones to watch because I think it's a mind over matter moment for people. They think I can't do this and they do, and then they love it. Um, we have unicycles and one of our junior coaches is kind of our go-to person for unicycles. And you know, the tall ones are called giraffes. Mm -hmm. So it's really fun to see, you know, some of the, the more senior members of our squad ride around on the really tall giraffes, um, or use the ring to ride on with their unicycles and then we also have stilts we have stilt walkers in our shows so yeah, those are you know some of the things that we do you've got everything everything.
2: as i said before the tcs services kids from the age of six up to the age of 18 they split this range up into two groups the first being six to twelve and the second being 13 to 18. I asked Regina how those two groups might differ in their level of vulnerability to the skills asked of them. She spoke about the younger kids' willingness to jump into something new without any insecurity. She said the older kids, who are maybe starting to be more aware of themselves and their bodies, have a few more insecurities or are more hesitant to try new skills. But the TCS gives them a safety net, literally and figuratively speaking, to march forward with confidence and without fear, knowing that they have a support system and a big crash mat to fall back on. Bilal Haley, the other squad member I spoke to, came to the TCS when he was around 15 years old and spoke to me about his experience as both a student performer and a teacher. When and how did you come to be a part of the Trenton Circus Squad?
4: When? Okay, so when, and it's a funny story, so it was about six years ago, I came to one of their shows and I saw a bunch of my friends in it.
5: Mm-hmm.
4: And I was just so excited to see them do it. And I was like, you know, I gotta do this. So I came the next day, um, met Mr. Thomas Van Ossen, Mr. Vio. I met uh, really good coaches that we had at the time. You know, I started getting engaged in all this stuff. It was really fun. And yeah, and then it just went from there, really.
2: So it was really just after that first show, you were like, um, I'm in.
4: Yeah. Yeah. But, when the, you know, how I kind of got, like, to be in the program, I kind of, like, you know, <laughs> Mr. Vio, he said to me the day I came, you know, don't do anything that you don't know how to do unless you have somebody to teach
2: you. Mm-hmm.
4: And, you know, me being me, I'm a guy, my friends are there. You know, they're like, go on, do it, just do it. I ended up breaking my leg.
2: Oh wow. <laughs>
4: but yeah, but you know, it was all right because, you know, I seen it as a lesson of, you know, sit down and take your time and really get into it. So I didn't that didn't stop me from coming back.
2: So I came um, back
4: with with the cast.
2: Oh, you're now twenty two. Twenty one. Yes, I'm right. turning twenty two. Yeah, you're turning twenty two. Um, when did you decide to come back? Um, you've aged out of the program, you decided to come back as a, an instructor, is that what you are now? Or like, what's your current role now?
4: My current role right now, I am a junior coach.
2: Okay. So when did you decide to come back as a coach?
4: Um, well, when I was in my senior year, they asked, you know, if, you know, if I ever considered working for them. Hmm. And since I've already been with circus for a while, before then, you know, I was like, you know, why not? I like doing it. It's fun. It's different. It's not the same every day. That's Mm kind of what, you know, brings me to, like,
5: loving the job because it's different every day. So,
4: and then that's how, you know, kind of, and also my friends kept having me come here. You know, they're always here, so why not get paid doing it?
2: (laughs) Yeah, just do what you love to do and get paid for doing it. That's really all there is to life. Um, So another question I have is, what was your most rewarding experience when you were like a student in the program? And also what has been your most rewarding experience as a coach so far? Bilal and Regina both spoke of the joy of experiencing the triumph of a performance and watching yourself and others around you grow both in confidence. There are many groups and donors who help the Trenton Circus Squad grow too. Regina told me about the corporate sponsorships and partnerships TCS has that come in to do workshops with the kids and with the staff as well. These corporate sponsors, some among them being the Boys and Girls Club, Amazon Smile, the MacArthur Theater, and more, see the value in this unique skill, circus performing, that the TCS brings to the community and the support that they give to the community members. Their partners support them to continue bringing their message to Trenton, Mercer County, and even the U.S. as a whole as the squad tours with their performance. TCS has a fundraiser show called The Ripple Effect on Saturday, March 25th at 7 p.m. I'll let Regina tell you about the goals of this show.
3: Yeah, so our biggest aim of the fundraiser, number one, we the show itself um, is called The Ripple Effect, and it's going to feature our alums as well as senior squad members. And they will be performing and talking about their experiences at Trenton Circus Squad and how it's impacted, you know, their life now. Um, Like I said before, we have members, we have squad members who have gone on to become coaches and instructors for after-school programs and for circus programs. And so seeing that connection back to TCS is really important. So that's what the show will be focused on. Um, And really the goal is to tell those stories, right? Sometimes Mm -hmm. we aren't able to tell our story as effectively, but we really hope this show will highlight the importance of what we do. And also fundraising side, we would love to be able to just hit some of our financial goals in terms of, you know, being able to expand and provide more resources for the kids that we serve. So we currently have, Two vans um, that, if we have to go pick up kids from school to get them there on time or to uh, transport everyone to regionals in Philly um, in April, those are what we use. And we would love to be able to have newer vans um, or more up to date (laughs) vans so that we can really provide more services. And that means, you know, also providing more workshops right Mm -hmm. so throughout the summer we have our summer tour and really wanting to have the financial means to make all those things possible um, because the work that we do is so important and if we aren't able to reach those goals we're still going to do it but it's just going to be a little bit harder so really want to make sure that we can hit those financial goals and tell our story through the show
2: Help the Trenton Circus Squad continue to spread their message and brilliantly performed circus acts to the Trenton youth by showing out for their show on the 25th of March, tickets to which are available online at TrentonCircusSquad.org. For WPRB News and Culture, I'm Ellie Diamond.
6: WPRB wants you to know that if you're a renter in Philadelphia, you should know your rights. PhillyTenant.org has everything you need to know about your rights and obligations as a tenant in Philadelphia. You can find information about security deposits, leases, evictions, repair, lead testing, housing assistance, and much more. That's PhillyTenant.org. A live help for low-income Philadelphia renters is also available by phone 9 a.m. through 7 p.m. Monday through Friday at 267-443-2500. This has been a public service announcement from WPRB, Princeton, community-supported, independent radio.
0: You're listening to WPRB News and Culture. Next on News and Culture, Sophie Lehany and Mira Ho Chen visit the grounds for sculpture in Hamilton, New Jersey, and explore one of its largest, longest, and strangest collections.
7: As the weather gets warmer, the grounds for sculpture in Hamilton, New Jersey becomes a popular day trip destination for those all around interested in seeing art and spending the day outdoors.
8: To understand the appeal of this place, we decided to visit last weekend. While a lovely idea in theory, we made the unfortunate decision to walk about on a freezing, windy March day. Maybe it was the cold, maybe it was the art, Maybe it was the famous criticism of Seward Johnson's work getting into our heads, but we initially found the place a bit disconcerting, creepy even, and easily dismissible as kitschy. And yet, as the day continued, we found ourselves surprisingly charmed by the art that we saw and the gardens that we passed through. The Grounds for Sculpture opened in 1992 on the former New
7: Jersey State Fairgrounds and was founded by sculptor and member of the famed Johnson & Johnson family, John Seward Johnson II. While the park contains sculptures by nearly 150 different artists, it really feels like an homage to Johnson, his life, and his work. After a career in the Navy, Johnson was inspired to pursue art by his second wife, Cecilia Joyce. Their life story along with information about Johnson's early life, currently fills one of the six indoor galleries at the grounds for sculpture. Over the course of his long art career, Johnson accumulated a number of critics. In his New York Times obituary, he was described as an artist that everyone loves to hate. The word that continuously comes up when describing his work is kitschy, in bad taste due to excessive garnishes or sentimentality this can definitely be viewed as a fair description due to how he recreates famous works such as famous impressionist paintings and famous scenes such as the scene of marilyn monroe from the seven years itch in these over exaggerated realistic but somehow
8: gaudy figure
7: sculptures
8: as we walked into the gardens the first sculptures we noticed were what johnson calls his monumental scale collection Giant, three Dified replicas of famous paintings from Grant Woods' American Gothic to Matisse's The Dance, ominously staring us down. It literally felt like we were in a horror movie set in an eerie abandoned amusement park.
7: Even creepier, we came across what we called a sculpture graveyard behind a fence connected to the main building. A parking lot full of mismatched humanoid sculptures that weren't on display at the time. Super scary.
8: The interesting thing about this sculpture garden is that most of the featured art was relatively normal. Normal meaning what one might expect to find in a peaceful, nature-filled art exhibition. So various amorphous shapes and stones, all earthy colors, unpainted metals that were different shades, brown, gray, and maybe a little turquoise.
7: So compared to the other pieces in the garden, Seward Johnson's work at first stood out to us like a sore thumb kitschy, bright, multicolored, and to use an internet term, deeply unserious. Strolling through the gardens, we noticed two types of sculpture. The ones that seemed to replicate everyday people doing ordinary actions, and the ones that were paying direct homage to Impressionist paintings.
8: The first category of sculpture, called Celebrating the Familiar, while freaky at first, was actually kind of delightful. We happened across a couple lounging in the woods, a teenager leaning against a wall, and a fisherman working by the lake, only to double-take and realize that they were made of metal. Recognizing these pieces and the surroundings felt almost like a game. Johnson's ability to capture these fleeting impressions and moments of daily life was charming and illustrated art's ability to reflect the ordinary. On his website, Seward Johnson states that my art is an imitation of life. The sculptures do many things. They can warm up a park or public space and they invite people to come into that space so that they don't feel quite alone. They also make good neighbors. They don't make a lot of noise. Realism has the capacity to reach everyone. There is no age barrier, no culture barrier, As the breadth of communication expands, so does the potency of a particular work. His other collection, titled
7: Beyond the Frame, seeks to bring well-known works by Renoir, Monet, and other impressionists to life by imagining their works as sculptures. And, though we found it a bit corny and cliche at first, it was actually really fun to inhabit these pieces and live amongst the art. Our personal favorite was getting to inhabit Van Gogh's famous bedroom.
8: But just as we began to think we understood this place, like we finally understood how to follow the path around the garden, the online interactive map became more user-friendly. We learned how to keep an eye out for Seward Johnson's Ordinary People Doing Ordinary Things as he likes to describe his sculptures, and even began to understand the appeal of his art but then we encountered the peacocks. Yup, the sculpture garden houses peacocks which just roam the grounds. We noticed roughly five or six of them. They were pretty well behaved and we got some cool photo opportunities, we definitely got jump scared a few times after turning a corner and getting surprised by a peacock chilling behind the wall. While shocking, the appearance of these peacocks seems quite on brand for the grounds for sculpture, a place that always keeps you on your toes.
7: Overall, we got to see an interesting mix of conventional geometric sculpture and some very off-putting works by Seward Johnson, and some of his works that we really enjoyed. My personal favorite was a work by Seward Johnson that was down by the lakeside, not far from the restaurant on the There you encounter a sculpture of a painter painting a couple on the boat. The boat and the couple rendered in the painting has a sculptural counterpart on the water as well. A couple feet away from the painter, there's yet another easel. This time, it's a sculpture of a painter painting the painter painting the couple on the boat. A little ways back, another one. A painter painting a painter painting a painter painting a couple on the boat. This piece is called Viral Art, and as silly and a little meta as it feels, it was a good laugh when you realize what's going on.
8: And my favorite piece was a sculpture I mentioned earlier, the couple laying in the woods titled, Testing Togetherness. At first, we thought that they were real people visiting the gardens, but on second look, we noticed that not only were they wearing summer clothes unfit for the weather, but they were also not real humans. As we inspected the artwork, I was impressed by Johnson's attention to detail. The couple was surrounded by other sculpted objects like a phone, a jacket, and a physics textbook that made the piece all the more realistic. When you visit the grounds for
7: sculpture, which we recommend you do, please go on a nice spring day where the flowers have bloomed, the sun is shining, it's not terribly cold or windy out, and you're ready to be ambushed by a stray peacock here
8: From WPRB, this is Mira Ho-Chan. And this is Sophie Lehaney.
9: WPRB wants you to know about Mural Arts Philadelphia. Mural Arts Philadelphia, the nation's largest public art program, exists to provide transformative experiences, progressive public discourse, and economic stimulus to the city of Philadelphia through participatory public art that beautifies, advocacy that inspires, and educational programming and employment opportunities that empower. Take a tour and hear some of the stories behind more than 4,000 murals that grace our city. Learn more by following at Mural Arts on Twitter and Instagram and by visiting muralarts.org. This has been a public service announcement from WPRB Princeton, community-supported independent radio.
0: You're listening to WPRB News and Culture. Next up, Claire McQueenie speaks to Reginald Dwayne Betts the MacArthur Genius Grant-winning poet, performer, and legal scholar behind Felon, An American Washi-Tale, a play about his own experience in the prison system.
9: Today, WPRB sits down with Dwayne Betts for a conversation on his recent one-man performance at MacArthur Theatre titled Felon, An American washy tale Betts is a poet, activist, lawyer, and advocate for prison reform. He was appointed by President Barack Obama as a practitioner member of the Office of Juvenile Justice and Delinquency Prevention. After serving eight and a half years in prison, after being convicted of an armed carjacking at the age of 16, Betts founded Freedom Reads, a nonprofit organization that provides prison housing units with 500 book freedom libraries with the intent of empowering and educating incarcerated people. Of his most recent accomplishments, Betts was a recipient of a 2021 MacArthur Fellowship, more informally known as a Genius Grant. I sat down with Betts as he discussed how his passion for literature first developed, his founding of Freedom Reads, and his recent performance at MacArthur.
10: So my name is Reginald Dwayne Betts, and I'm the founding CEO of Freedom Reads.
9: The idea for Freedom Reads came to Betts a few years into his incarceration, as he began to understand both the empowering and liberating capabilities of literature.
10: I think about it a lot, um, both the backstory to Freedom Reads and how, how I explain or talk about it. And, um, in some sense, the easiest way is to be straightforward. You know, I went to prison when I was 16, and, um, and you know, subsequently, while inside books radically transformed my life, it made me, um, I think, a more thoughtful person more humble person and maybe educated, more empathetic. Uh, empathetic. But it also gave me a gateway and understanding of myself. And I think that it was through literature that I was able to really um, grow on the inside and sort of not succumb to um, some of the ways in which the harshness and the brutality of prison could lead a person to, um, to kind of um, not be able to accept responsibility not be able to accept where they were and why they were there, but also not be able to accept the fact that it's really possible to become somebody
9: different. After his release from prison at the age of 24, Betts continued to pursue his passion for literature, centering books in all aspects of his life. He also began to radically reimagine the ways in which those who were still incarcerated could gain access to books.
10: And so I come home and, and books remain central to my life in ways that I wouldn't have predicted. I started a book club. I ended up on the front page of Washington Post for that book club. Um, I became an educator. I wrote some books. I ended up at law school. Um, and all of these things in some ways, yeah, all of these things in some ways was born out of just my engagement with books. And um, and so Freedom Reads comes out about me saying, well, what would it mean? You know, somebody asked me, what would I do if, if money wasn't an issue, and I could do anything I wanted to sort of try to, what was my moonshot for throwing something to improve the lives of people on the inside?
9: The libraries, which have been aptly named Freedom Libraries, are displayed in handcrafted curved oak bookshelves, many of which have been crafted by people who have served time in prison themselves. The libraries are placed in the housing units of the prisons, where they are visible from cell.
10: Yeah, so on some basic level, it's just a few beautiful things in prison. And and you you know I did my eight and a half years in prison, and I was constantly just around um, steel, metal, sometimes plastic, but nothing with that life giving force mm-hmm. of, of hardwood. I was just like you know maple, walnut, cherry, oak, um, and then also though it's a sort of craftsmanship that we knew would go into um, the making of it and the making of it by hand. It feels like connecting to nature. And then it feels like bringing that nature into a world that's like woefully lacking of it. Uh, we decided to make them carved. Um, we decided to make them curved, just really riffing off of this fact that there are really few curved things in prison. It's just straight lines and right angles. And so, you know, we make ours curved so that it, it creates an arc, thinking about also Martin Luther King's quote um, about how the, the arc of the universe is long, but it bends towards justice. Mm-hmm. We were thinking about putting something in these housing units that, that reflect that. And, and all that this came together um, between a collaboration of me and the Mass Design Group, an architecture firm in Boston, that helped that partner with us to design the bookshelves.
9: Aside from originating the initial mission of Freedom Reads, Betts has been involved in the creation process of the 500 book libraries from the very beginning, relying on friends and families for suggestions as well as external focus groups.
10: We, we did focus groups. It was great because it was the pandemic and I needed friends to tell me what books they love, but I couldn't talk to all of my friends and, and colleagues and people I didn't know. What I decided to do was to ask my friends to set up basically um, uh, a focus group, but a Zoom call that was recorded mm. with them and two of their friends. And I was like, and all I want you to do is just talk about books. And what was fascinating about that is that they became both a focus group to help me choose the books we would ultimately choose. But they also became a focus group to really demonstrate and reflect the mm-hmm. way in which um, Freedom Reads were working the inside. Because it was just deeply fascinating listening to folks talk about the books they loved and discover more about each other. These were all friends. And it was always a moment of discovery um, amongst friends that it was like, oh, I didn't know you loved that book. We then had people reviewing the books, and I just made final decisions.
9: All well incarcerated. Betts also worked to develop as a poet, a process which he cites as giving him both agency and responsibility.
10: I never read poetry while I was incarcerated, and I never read poetry really much in in high school either, Um, but I get this book, and it's um, Dudley Rand with the Black Poets. I'm in solitary confinement. I'm looking for a way to figure out who I am in the world. I mean, I'm a teenager, I'm 17 years old, and I'm facing all of this time in prison and I'm, I'm not necessarily doing prison well. So I'm just dealing with, with stress. And um and ultimately I get this book and, and it just changes my perspective on so much and mostly on what
9: role I had in, in creating the who that I, I was gonna be. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and I started to think of
10: myself as a writer with like agency and also with responsibility.
9: Alongside his development as a writer, Betts pursued paths to assert agency over his own identity, including changing his name.
10: You know, a lot of guys around me would change their names, and it was almost like, in a way like in the 60s, you know, you, you become hip yep. to some understanding of the world, you know, and, um, and you wanted to carry a name that reflects that. And I ended up having everybody call me Shaheed, and it turns out that even before I really knew it, you know, I understood that... Um, I, I, I chose the name Shaheed partly because I couldn't understand while I was in prison, why I was in prison. And I understood that I committed a crime. That's not what I didn't understand. I just didn't understand what was the point. Like, did mm-hmm. I just absolutely waste my life? A, a judge told me when I got sentenced, I'm under no illusion that sending you to prison will help, but you could get something out of it if, if you want. And, and I always resented him for saying that to me because mm-hmm. um, I just thought... If you know it's not gonna help, why are you sending me to prison? Right. And then though, you know, I got a little bit older, and I recognized that like I always took what he said as a challenge, and and that's why when I was inside, I worked really hard to to, to be somebody. Mm-hmm. And I think choosing the name Shahid was coupled with an earlier decision to just tell myself I was going to be a writer. And so somehow subconsciously, I was asserting an identity which was writer as witness.
9: Beyond prison, confining identities and stigmatized labels remain complicated for bats. This is particularly true for the noun felon, which he titled his one-man play. The play is performed across the country, both on campuses and in prisons.
10: And my trouble with the word is less than it exists, I think it's descriptive. A person who has committed a felony. It doesn't even refer to a person who's been in prison, right? It's just a person who has committed a felony. Mm the thing is, we turn it into meaning so much more than that. And I guess that's why what I wanted to show, and I hope I show in part in the show, is that, that that person that's carrying around that Monica fella is, has a life as rich and as complicated and sometimes as tragic as any of our own. Um, so I like to think that the piece is not trying to run away from or make an argument about the overuse of the term as much as make an argument about the way in which the term really does operate to um, reduce the complexity of, of, of a group of people's humanity.
9: In the play, Betts also outlines his time as a lawyer, working to help and represent those who remain incarcerated. Betts has often represented those he went to prison with, particularly at their parole hearing.
10: Yes, so I, I, I did some time, um, and I talk about it on my show, I did some time you know, worked in a public defender's mm-hmm. office. Um, I did some time working for a federal judge, but also, almost in the middle of law school, you know, almost at the very beginning of law school, I started learning things that made me think of, of what could happen for my friends. And so I worked to get friends' lawyers first, and then I worked um, on parole cases. I came from a state that didn't have parole, and so I had I had one friend that was eligible. But I hadn't really thought about it much when I went to law school until I, um, until I worked on somebody's case and got them out. Then I worked on a friend of mine's case and ultimately I got him out. And I, I've been representing um, guys I went to prison with for a while. And, and I'm, you know, right now I got three three clients' cases going on. But it's been good work, but it's been hard work because there's a lot of losses.
9: Despite his experience as both a lawyer and a poet, Betts turned to the stage for his latest project, a one-man show which displays both his poetry as well as original pieces of art. He understands theater as allowing him to represent his world in addition to the already powerful poetry.:
10: Part of it really is thinking about um, thinking about like art is, as meaning to communicate. Mm-hmm. And then I feel like, you know, sometimes the poems, they do 85 percent what, of what I want. And I wanted to do something different.
5: Mm-hmm. And
10: the thing, I wanted, the thing I wanted to do different was like, well, what does it mean to... to a poem exists on its own, but it's sometimes anytime I did a reading, it would be like little stories that I would tell, context that I would add. And the poems suggests the world, but the poems don't suggest my world. Mm. So I wanted to say, what if I use my poems to give you my world? Because the poems aren't always about me. Right. And that's why you see the show... It's not every poem in a book.
9: One moment in Betts' show represents the power and necessity of visual artwork as well as physical movement. Towards the end of the play, Betts hoists up various kites that have been lying on the ground. The kites, which are made out of clothes worn by incarcerated individuals, lift high above him where they rest for the remainder of the play. They are constructed using traditional Japanese washi paper-making techniques created by Ruth
10: Lingen. You know, the kites become an elegy... And a kind of prayer and kind of complicated acknowledgement of how difficult things are. So, um, so the kites are always there in some way, yeah. And, um, and depending on the space constraints, you know, I just love to raise them because mm-hmm. it's just that moment of I don't know. It feels different, and, um, and it always takes me to a, a complicated emotional space, no matter no matter what. And then, uh, um, and then the rest of the stage, you know what? It's the, the handmade paper that's been made mm-hmm. by, um, you know, me from the clothes of people that, yeah. that I know who, who were in prison at the time. Um, and then it's the letters of friends of mine. So it's interesting because I think the the set is, is like in some ways very, very unique. Um, but then in, in other ways, I think the set is very, um, it's, it's simple in a kind of elegant way. Mm-hmm.
9: Staying true to his title of book curator, Betts left WPRB listeners with a few of his current book suggestions. It's
10: called um, A Gentleman in Moscow.
9: Yeah. Mm-hmm.
10: By, by Mortals, It's just a, a really fantastic book. And it's a book that says a lot about the possibility that can come through um, constraint. But it just says a lot about the inventiveness of, of the writer and of the mind. It's a lot of lovely stories. And... um just lovely anecdotes within the this, within this story.
5: Mm-hmm.
10: But it's so rich that um, every section teaches you something about how we make choices every day, about how we want to show up in the world. And, and it might be difficult to make those choices, the ones that we want to live with, but it can be done. So I would suggest that. Okay. And I mean, an awesome favorite, I've been thinking a lot about Paradise. Um, Toni Morrison is a legend, but I've been thinking a lot about it book Paradise.
5: Mm-hmm.
10: And I'll add one more. Yeah, um, Ishmael no reads Mumbo Jumbo because it's hilarious, um, and people don't talk about it as much. But um, but it's really, good. Real. it's like a art heist kind of book that's oh, cool. hilarious <laughs> and interesting and complex.
9: For more information on Freedom Reads, go to freedomreads.org. For WPRB, this has been Clara McQueenie.
0: WPRB wants you to know about Table to Table. They are a community-based food rescue program in northern New Jersey that collects fresh and perishable food that would otherwise be wasted and delivers it to organizations that serve the hungry in Bergen, Essex, Hudson, and Passaic counties. They rescue this healthy food from about 150 donors, supermarkets, food distributors, restaurants, and commercial kitchens, and deliver it the same day free of charge to over 250 community organizations including food pantries, shelters, daycare and after-school programs, senior adult centers, and programs serving the working poor. And they need your help. To find out how you can support their amazing work or get involved, please visit tabletotable.org. This has been a public service announcement from WPRB Princeton, community-supported independent radio. You're listening to WPRB News and Culture. In our last story of the episode, Alan Plotz and Pat Great learn about the work of the Arts Council of Princeton in bringing the joy of music and the arts into a suburban world.
11: That's something else that we want to encourage is, is... Uh, to bring artists in and give artists opportunities and us, not necessarily just our students, but we're giving artists opportunities to make money. We're giving an opportunity for the townspeople to walk up and down their streets, to walk in around their town, to see something new and exciting and to be, to experience, you know, people and or cultures that aren't necessarily their own to broaden their own worldview. And, you know, we're doing it in a way that is, pro-town, pro-business, pro-artists.
1: That's Adam Welch. He's been the executive director of the Princeton Arts Council for the past two years. We sat down with him to learn more about the arts in the Princeton community, and more specifically, his involvement in the Princeton Porch Fest 2022. For WPRB, this is Patrick Gray and Alan Plotz.
11: Of course, it was a beautiful day, wildly successful. We had 11 porches. I think we had 61 bands and it was just uh, a really fantastic day and it culminates so all the other portraits happen simultaneously as well as the arts council and then there's one final concert one final performance that happens at the arts council after all the other ones have um ended and um it was so full and so big that the police um you know uh just decided to close the roads so um and everybody just filled out into the street and heard the one last performance and it was um, just a really great time and a really great feeling. And there was a lot of um, real excitement about it.
1: For musicians from Princeton, events like PorchFest and others provide an important interface with the community.
2: I would say I'm surprised that so many people would show up to a concert like this because it was kind of my impression because we had never had a concert as big as we did in the past fall at Richardson, um, that PPE, is interesting, but it also kind of serves like a kind of a niche group of like our close friends of our members and people who like care about classical music. But I think as we've started to expand towards a lot of genres and doing more radical and theatric performances, um, the broad audience, a broader audience we're able to reach not just at the campus, but in the local Princeton area and central New Jersey area as well. Um, It really makes me feel connected. It makes me feel like I'm able to you know create music that people people really really do enjoy
6: that's meryl lou she's the co-president of the princeton piano ensemble or ppe as it's known they performed last year at the university's quote-unquote porch that is a stage outside of the old university art center on nassau street but adam is excited too beyond just having musicians who feel included He's innovating with other ideas, too, about what Portress has to offer and what it can mean to the community. For him, that requires connections to all different community stakeholders, including businesses.
11: You know, I've been keen uh, to paying attention to when I started uh, was supporting the businesses, right? So the businesses support us, and we want to make sure that we support them. And, you know, they make so much of, of Prince possible, right? So now, what we've created is opportunities for, uh, since Porch Fest didn't have food, didn't have concessions, uh, which is where the arts council would make so much of their money for these events,
1: and the event certainly isn't easy to pull off.
11: And there's, unfortunately, a lot of the time not a lot of money involved. So they're doing so many free and exciting uh, outreach and free and exciting programs to the community, whether it be, you know, Porch Fest, which is entirely free for the community. And um, the staff work on that for, you know, four months, Um, you know, not always, but, you know, for four months, they're working on um, something that's uh, totally free for the town and and all the participants. And we have our day of the Dead event, which is totally free and uh, open to the community.
6: But Adam is committed to its worth as an innovation and way of bringing together all stakeholders
11: in Princeton. The university, um, which, uh, you know, was um, started in 1971 actually Saturday May 1st 1971 as the art people party um, you know wasn't largely liked by a lot of the businesses it struggled through the through the decades it struggled from timing from purpose uh, you know it experienced a significant uh, what you might call mission drift um, where you know the goal of it was to be you know about art and celebrating art and Um, celebrating the, um, actually, you know, it was quoted in the town topics as the merry month of May. Um, And then it turned into this sort of street fair, um, which though it was massive, you know, it didn't help the town necessarily. And it didn't help the businesses necessarily. And it didn't help the artists. So here's one thing that started with an attention and grew so big. And, um, you know, 40,000 people would attend, but they weren't, they weren't necessarily entirely the businesses. They weren't necessarily entirely the Princetonians, or the you know Princeton students or Princeton town people. Um, and uh, you know it was it was something that you know was no longer really a truly.
1: Adam also elaborated on the impact of the porch fest on the community of Princeton compared to the old event of community it certainly isn't easy to get rid of the near fifty-year-old tradition of communiversity to pursue porch fest in its place.
11: And um, I don't necessarily um, think uh, tradition is something that you have to uh, live by. And uh, I also don't just look at change for change's sake, um, but I do. I do know that you know institutions uh, at times uh, can be so focused on. The past and maintaining senses of tradition that um, they don't grow and they don't experience uh, uh, you know a sense of vitality. Merrill
6: also touched on the culture of PPE with its radical departure from the culture of traditional classical music even if they use the same instruments.
1: Both Merrill Liu and Adam Welsh interact with decades-old mediums in the community to make rather radical change. Mayor Liu co-president of the Princeton Pianist Ensemble showed a perspective behind some of the art that comes out of Princeton, where members of the ensemble will set up in Merrill's own terms, a niche group of art, and classical arrangements for the unexpected but interested audience of the greater Princeton community. The freedom that PPE has compared to the culture of classical performance has caught the attention of the people here. And the initiative Merrill discussed today showed a bit about how the spirit of the arts has stayed alive in a very historically-informed community through radical change. Adam Welch also explained his perspective on the tradition of community as the Executive Director at the Princeton Arts Council, and how, although community had been going on for nearly 50 years before the Arts Council pulled the plug, the project of Portrait Fest had reinvigorated his team and the community at large by inviting people to come in, to see local artists, and keep them around long enough to support local businesses.
0: And that's our show. News and Culture is produced at the WPRB Studios in Princeton, New Jersey. I'm your host and the show's producer, Adam Sanders. This episode was reported, recorded, and produced by myself, Ellie Diamond, Sophie Lohenny, Mira Ho Chen, Clara McWeeny, Alan Plotz, and Pat Great. Our editors are Hannah Lee, Clara McWeeny, Alan Plotz, and Henry Moses. The new theme music for our show is Take Me Higher by Jazar. All music used is under Creative Commons license. For more details, visit our website at news.wprb.com. Can't get enough of WPRB News & Culture? Find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts, or at our website at news.wprb.com. That's news.wprb.com. WPRB WPRB News & Culture is produced in Princeton, New Jersey, by WPRB Princeton, community-supported, independent radio. Take care and enjoy your evening.